All right, so uh, it's one of those summer Sundays. Hopefully uh, you're out enjoying the summer on a general basis. Hopefully you've made it to the beach at some time this summer. It seems to be on our mind a lot. Uh, so whether you've been out on some far-flung travel, checking out Bermuda or Florida or somewhere great like that, or whether you're hitting up the local beaches of Nahant and Crane Beach and up to Salisbury, maybe you've gone as far up as York or maybe you'll catch us at Kennebunk uh, next week. But the beach is a great place to go, right? It's a big part of summer, kind of is one of the things that marks our season. We have those long, terrible winters sometimes, and getting a chance to get back at the beach, enjoy the sun, feel that frigid New England water uh, is still a pretty, pretty good experience. And as you, you think about going to the beach and that experience, one of the things that always comes to my mind is just kind of wherever I am in the world, at whatever beach it is, there's a real depiction of God at the beach, you can really get a good sense of what God is like as you're there. Whether, uh, you know, I've been in the Mediterranean and watched some majestic sunsets and sunrises on the Mediterranean, and you're just marked by just the brilliance and beauty that God brings to the world, what he's created and that's here. You, I've been at the North Sea, and you kind of stare at the fury, the anger. This is an angry sea, if you've ever looked at it. And it's, it tells you this is a powerful God, and his fury is not to be messed with. It's intense as you look on that. Or even at Nahant, as you just kind of watch the waves roll in again and again and again without any miss, you can be reminded of God's faithfulness and the fact that he is unchangeable and continues to make these things happen day after day. And so there's these kind of theological lessons that I see from the beach and spending time there that's uh, really important. And uh, it came to my mind thinking about a, a little bit about our faith this morning. Uh, and as we go to Hebrews 11, we're going to talk uh, about another hero of the faith, uh, superhero crossed out on that, and getting a feel for what Moses is like and what we can learn from his life of faith. So I want you to kind of think about that beach as we go through that setting and kind of think about that experience, right? You get ready to get in the water, you walk out there, and there's that initial sensation, especially in our New England waters, right, of when that cold water hits you, wow, it's this, this initial impact of feeling. Uh, in some ways, uh, we're kind of pushed back a little ways. We're, we're wondering what's happening. You've got to get acclimated to the water. As you stand then on the sand, the next wave comes in, right? And there's that sense of when that wave comes, you feel it rush past you. And you have that feeling of being slightly unstable, right? Even as an adult, you can get off balance. You might have to take a step to kind of keep it there. And then the water starts to recede back, right? And you feel the sand underneath you start to pull out your feet. You're, it kind of comes back around you, and you are shifting again on that sand. In a lot of ways, that's a picture of our faith. As we think about the challenges of our lives, the context we have of having faith, it can feel as if we're on shifting sand, and we need to regain our footing. So I was struck by these words, uh, if you can hit the next slide, just uh, from, a call, from a song from a, a band called Cademan's Call. I had a few words that kind of brought this to mind. It says, sometimes I believe all the lies so I can do the things I despise. And every day I'm swayed by whatever is on my mind. And then it says, my faith is like shifting sand, changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand. So we, we think about the, the idea of these words, not, not particularly uh, exciting or encouraging from these words. It, it's kind of getting the idea of the angst that we feel at times in our faith and getting to that uh, and really having a sense in which we kind of just get pummeled in life. The next thing hits us. The next thing hits us. And at times your faith can feel uneasy. And you're wondering, well, boy, I wish I could 
have stronger faith to deal with these circumstances. And the song is, is relating that to that feeling that we kind of have of, of our feet on shifting sand. Now, there's more to the song, but as we reflect on that, I think it's really important to think around um, how we perceive our faith a little bit as, as kind of Bostonians. I think sometimes we think about our faith as kind of this private, personal matter that maybe is imperceptible to others. And we, you know, you have faith, you believe in, believe in God, you, you may have that as part of your life, but it doesn't really appear differently in the day-to-day life. So you can think of a mom who has faith and a mom who doesn't have faith. And you look at them and they, of course, you know, are both uh, working hard, trying to care for their families, they love their kids, they both recycle, they shop organic, prepare nutritious meals, of course. And they're both aiming for the same ideal of kids in a family, a happy, healthy life, right? You look on the outside, you can see a lot of things very similar, we think. Additionally, an employee with faith, an employee without faith, what do they do? They're both trying to work hard, both trying to care for their families, trying to get ahead, oftentimes aiming for that utopian ideal of work-life balance, whatever that is and however you achieve it. And so we think often, you know, there's not a lot of difference maybe in these individual tasks of our lives of whether you really have faith in God or not, you, you kind of do similar things. That's kind of the, the general ethos or feeling we have in our culture. Uh, it's general tolerance. We have a feeling of there's nothing difference between us and others. Uh, we think about the, the words of our cultural prophet, Kenny Chesney, who says, get along while we can. Uh, can't we all get along? Uh, and that's an important point to getting through life. But the reality of faith described for us in the book of Hebrews is that it's actually quite a bit different. It's, it's very stark. It kind of blows the lid off of that concept. And the faith described for us is not kind of like a, a, an add-on or something that's imperceptible to others. It, it's more intense than that. It's also not something that kind of wears out or is, is lack of usefulness. I, I've kind of thought of this as like the Palm Pilot faith. That's not how it's described. Do you remember the Palm Pilot, anyone? You know, it's this really cool thing. You kind of used it. It was amazing for a while. You could put it in your pocket, clip it on your belt, look really cool like that. But then over time... You just stuck it in a drawer somewhere. Never really mattered. You probably haven't thought about it in a long time. And it's replaced by whatever is the new and exciting thing to try instead. That's not what faith is meant to be. It's meant to be integrated in our lives. It's meant to bring out action in how we live. So in the original audience of this sermon that we have in the book of Hebrews, uh, in the New Testament, it's, it's using stories from the Older Covenant and they're taking us through some deep, all-encompassing uh, life stories of trust in God. But these stories aren't about kind of quiet, reverent, contemplation on a couch somewhere stories. They're about action in specific ways. And as we start to look into our, our text today and, and look into Moses' life specifically, it shows us what faith and action is like. And it says very specifically that it's about doing and not doing things. That's a big part of this action. Sometimes it's doing something, and sometimes it's not doing something. And both of those can be actions of faith. So it's radical and puts puts people in uh, real situations where we have to have decisions and move forward to have our faith in in Jesus. So the author of Hebrews, preaching to his original audience, and not only uh, to them, but to all of us today here uh, gathered around Melrose, and he has this key point for us today, that faith acts. Sometimes by doing and sometimes by not doing. That's that essential piece we need to walk away from today that we'll, we'll look into together. Uh, Moses w- lived this out for us in some of the ways that he, he lived. Sometimes it was against his culture and not choosing to embrace the ideals of it. And other times he was able to stand uh, in, in ways uh, by not acting as well. And then if we look at the, the next slide, 
how we'll break this down is look at three marks of active faith from Moses' life. So first of all, there's defiant faith, uh, and then there's this denying faith or self-denying faith, if you will. Got to keep the alliteration somehow. And then uh, demonstrable faith is our last one. So just kind of a quick walk through Moses' life, and we'll get a feel for how we can learn uh, from his example of faith. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump in. God, I thank you for the time uh, we have today and for the example of Moses, that we would take this life uh, story that we can read into, and God, you would cause it to be relevant and meaningful and significant in our lives. God, that as we have different paces and different uh, timetables right now at this uh, juncture of the year, God, that you would somehow use this story to bolster our faith, to drive us forward in action and preparation for the summer and fall uh, that we have ahead that we would walk with you and bless our time together. Amen. All right, so this, uh, this first verse, we're going to jump into verse 23. Here are the words from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. So we have them up on the screen. This verse says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So this is our our verse here to help us see what defiant faith looks like, actually standing against something. So in Exodus 1 and 2, we're told about the Hebrews living in Egypt after the death of Joseph. And Pharaoh determined that the Hebrews were a threat to the Egyptians. So he decided to cut off their potential power and, and potential insurrection by killing all the male babies under two. And likely, he would have just continued this for some time, right? Okay, we'll let these people live here. We'll kill off their male children. They're kind of going to die off as a people group at some point in the future. But Moses' parents actually acted in faith in defying that order from Pharaoh. Basically, the parents were turning over the children, or they were just having them at home. If you can imagine the serious tragedy of this concept in any way. I mean, these are normal people, families, and the idea that the soldiers, the armies would come into these homes and take these young children and end their lives. You can imagine just a horrible situation in this, uh, this, this people group there in Egypt of the Hebrews. But Moses' parents acted in faith, and they acted in faith against uh, the government, acting in faith against the power that was there. So they had looked at their, their child, their, their young child Moses, and, and the text says that they saw him as beautiful. I kind of think, well, yeah, what parent doesn't see their kid and think they're beautiful, right? I mean, that's kind of a, a given. Babies are generally cute. I think we can agree across the board. Uh, but there's something larger that's being conveyed here. Uh, this true beauty has a definition. Uh, it comes from a source. Beauty is defined by God, and he orders it and ordains it. So there's an awareness of human life as beautiful in what's being said here, right? This, I, I don't can't imagine any world in which we would see that as a, a ter- a not a terrible thing to have killed these children under the age of two. Uh, so it's very common in humanity to see uh, child life as important. But there's something additional going on here, as uh, we can read in Acts and, and some other passages, pointing to the idea that there was something marked out about Moses. It probably wasn't that he looked funny or he was especially attractive or something like that as some of uh, the older folks have looked at in, in commentating on this passage. But as we think around what this beauty is, Stephen draws our attention uh, in the book of Acts in chapter 7 that this beauty of Moses was probably a mark of God's favor on him and his sight. That there was something special that God was going to do through Moses and himself. So however that was exactly conveyed to Moses' parents, they took a pretty bold act. They're immigrants in the nation of Egypt, and at that point, they chose to stand against the government in order to protect their child, and they were willing to go to extreme measures in order to do that. So one of the ways they did that uh, was 
kept him in the home, keeping him quiet for a, for a period of time. And then eventually he's kind of getting older. You know, those kids start to make more noise. And at that point they decide they're going to put him in a basket made of bulrushes and put it in the Nile River. And they have his sister Miriam go and watch over it and make sure it's a safe place for him. But basically if you take him out there during the day and have him kind of by the water, okay, no, the soldiers aren't going to find him when they're doing whatever kind of routine searches they're doing. And the child could be safe. And then assumedly they probably brought him in at night or something like that when it was a little less conspicuous. So they went to these great lengths to take care of him. And God providentially honored that faith, that decision to actually hide and take care of their child in such a way that uh, he would be protected. So when you hear about that, you can think about kind of the setting of the ocean that we talked about at the beginning, right? There's this opportunity. There's this government command. You're supposed to do this. The easiest thing in the world, maybe not the easiest thing in the world in this situation, right, with the children uh, involved, but you had to make a clear decision to go against an order, something that was very present and easy to just fall in line with. I'm sure there were many other Hebrew parents who, despite their best efforts or despite their wishes, lost children in this ordeal and didn't do the same actions that Moses' parents did in this. So whatever they were doing going through the circumstances, they were unable to spare their child because they didn't do something as extreme or drastic in this way of caring for for their son. But Moses' parents did this and God honored it. And God protected Moses so he could be grown and be able to lead the nation of Israel. So when we think about faith, sometimes I think from this passage we, we tend to think that faith is, again, like I said, undiscernible. Or it's something that is very much like the person next to you without faith. We have an example here where it could actually be defiance. Sometimes not doing what we're asked to do is actually a step of faith. Being able to stand against government or other powers, local or across the board, and knowing that there's a need to act in faith may require that action from us. So I think about what that could look like in our life, and I'm just going to kind of leave these open as rhetorical thoughts for you so you think about them. Think about an education, right? To not fear our culture, other parents, administration, teachers, or other students. Sometimes what would it be to act in faith in some situations? Is there times when we need to do something in faith, even though it kind of goes against those other figures? And there could be circumstances when we need to not do actions within our education uh, setup. Uh, similarly with our schedules and what's a priority in our family, what we spend money on, where we spend our time, each of these things are opportunities where we can actually integrate our faith and make clear decisions, defying sort of the cultural or powerful uh, systems that are on place of that in order to live by faith. So that's the defiant faith. Let's go to uh, our second point and talk about what denying or self-denial faith is. And if we look at this, uh, this next verse here, this is in verse 24, chapter 11. The text says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So we get a little bit of a fast forward in Moses' life. And he's no longer a baby. It's played out. He's now grown up. And he has this act of self-denying faith. He refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, so he was part of the royal family. Moses' parents had saved his life. His sister Miriam had watched over him, as we said. And then the princess had heard the crying and asked for the baby to be drawn from the water, or the basket brought to her. She found this Hebrew son and said, oh, I'm going to take care of him. I mean, again, you can't orchestrate that. That's an amazing action to have played out. Obviously, God's hand is in that uh, for that to, p- to play out. 
But in that, uh, this form of adoption made him uh, uh, adopted by the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was treated as her own son. So he was afforded all the opportunities and privileges of royalty. And what's important for us to get from this is not that this is just a quaint Bible story here that you might hear and have read to children at some point or another. It's actually a, a historically situated situation that is about real people. So when we think about this, there's actually depictions of what this would be like in, in Egyptian history uh, that helps us understand a little bit about what Moses was going to. So it's a real time period. Uh, it's referred to as the New Kingdom period of Egypt, and it's uh, the very height of Egyptians' influences when Moses was going through this. So they had the largest empire that Egypt had during all of their history was during this period of time. Their kingdom stretched all the way from all of Egypt into kind of southern Africa, all the way up into Israel and Lebanon, up into Syria, and quite broad in what they covered. It was the height of their economy, the height of their military power at the time when Moses was there. And Moses, as, uh, as a uh, part of the royal family would have been familiar with the great wealth that was there. We see it in our day, still reflected in kind of, if you've heard of the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, a great depiction of this time period as they even buried their, their leaders with great wealth. Um, it, it, so much was present. And as part of the royal family, they wanted for nothing, for food, for entertainment, for safety or satiation from every imaginable pleasure. And Moses was in the favored position of an adopted foreign son. So this is a specific... Uh, there's a specific term in, in Egyptian literature to describe this. He, was called, he would have been called a child of the nursery, which was an endeared term used for him that would include that he would have had a tutor, someone to train him in culture and, and, and language of Egypt so that he would be fully ready to step into a functioning role in the royal court of Egypt. So he was being groomed not only to enjoy Egypt, but to also flourish in that time period. And he had like a career path, if you will, of what his life would be like. He would have a chariot with fine horses, a house, and servants to care for his every need. He would have the greatest education imaginable at the time with an influential and cushy role in the kingdom. He would have likely had multiple wives and never be without comfort, power, or prestige. We could say he was going to be all set, to be honest. The closest analogies of our present day would be, if you can imagine, uh, being offered a free ride to Harvard, being given a federal lifetime appointment, and then some restricted shares of Facebook and Airbnb at their founding. Something like that would have been about like this is like. And then if you can imagine, in those situations, being offered all these great things right to your, to your hands, and then refusing them. You know, we'd look at that person, whoever they are, and whatever the circumstances, we'd say, you're nuts. Are you crazy? Why in the world? Are you, isn't there some way you can, like, please God and do all those great things together? Like, why, why do they got to be mutually exclusive? Come on. And yet we see from the life of Moses, he had all of that opportunity, the prestige, the wealth, the influence, and he refused to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. This opportunity that you can see the ocean coming toward them, the opportunity of the sand, his faith is tested, and he continues to stand through that. Moses refuses this privilege, this all-setness of it all, and the author of Hebrew tells us that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And instead, see what he says instead, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. Look at this next, uh, next slide with us. He chose really the people of God and their mistreatment instead of the fleeting pleasure of sin. So he thought it was better to be mistreated with the people of God rather than have this fleeting pleasure of sin. 
So his suffering with God's people meant that Moses was identifying himself as a Hebrew and his heredity instead of his adopted identity as a royal Egyptian. And the Hebrews were literally suffering at that time. They were going through physical persecution. Uh, He is involved in uh, great labor, slave labor at this time, and he is saying, I need to be with them instead of with my royal family where I could be. This idea of suffering really put in context that he's, he's kind of weighing out uh, these options is how the author of Hebrews is putting it out there. He, he's seeing them in kind of a real sense. Sometimes we don't do that, right? In life, we see alternatives. We kind of weigh options, and we think, okay, this is just one over the other. This is 10% more money. This is five more miles away. Okay, I can just make a small choice here. What this is showing is, at times, those choices that seem like just incidental alternatives can actually be significant choices that we're making in faith. It could be saying taking the more money or taking less money, living closer, living further away, are actually moments of testing our faith and deciding if we're going to be driven by faith or instead driven by some of these uh, alternatives that are calling us. Some of those can be pleasures of sin uh, at times that are being described, or at times it can be more, uh, more insidious and less of an impact. Uh, sometimes we're being called to not necessarily physical persecution at the moment here because of our faith, but oftentimes it can be a cost societally in economics or reputational harm by choosing to identify ourselves with the people of God. The, the King James Version actually takes this verse and it, it kind of describes this idea of the pleasures of sin for, sin for a season is the way it describes it, to really put this uh, temporalness of what Joseph was, or excuse me, what Moses was determining uh, in making this choice. He's actually kind of putting out a bit of return economics, if you will, to think through this. He's saying, if I put myself in this short-term difficulty in this period of life with the people of God, there's a further, later reward of enjoyment, a time of greater enjoyment ahead. So I'm going to trust that that reward in the future is going to be much better than the short-term pain I'm going through. So I think about that often, the, uh, the idea of short-term pain versus long-term gain. Right? We, we make those decisions all the time. We try to think, okay, if I skimp this or we cut out maybe this one little luxury item from ourselves and we can save up or we can do something better, there's going to be this vacation down the road. There's going to be this another accomplishment that we're aiming for in our life. So we think, how do I defer something that I'm trying to accomplish in order to get this greater good? We make those choices and trade-offs all the time. But somehow when it comes to our faith and action, sometimes we can't see that, right? It's a matter of looking around, seeing what's around us, that's what we put our hope and our trust in because that future return is, seems far down the road and it's quite unseen. We don't know what God is offering us in faith at times. And so we think, hey, it's okay to make this trade-off. This idea of long-term and short-term pain is uh, not always uh, something that I thought of on my own. It's something that was brought home to me in a sermon I heard when I was in the fifth grade, to be honest. And it was a, something that kind of has stuck with me throughout these years. And so I think even of our, our younger children who are with us and able to hear uh, the Word of God on a regular basis as they're brought here, you know, you're hearing the words of life that are brought to you and those opportunities to see how you're going to live your life as a teenager in your 20s, in your 30s. You have that opportunity to similarly think around where you put your faith, that there is going to be opportunities for you to be thinking about turning your heart toward God now and then following on with that, even if it costs you something in the short term, because you can now put your hope and your trust in God for the future. And similarly, as we get older, the choices are kind of the same. Uh, we have trade-offs. We have to decide where do we put our hope and our joy. Is it in what we have and what we can see? 
or is it in hoping for something for the future? And it's not usually a once-for-all decision like we read here in, in, in uh, Moses kind of rejecting his life as an Egyptian and turning instead to be living with the Hebrews. Could be that. Might be some of that for some of us. But oftentimes it's these little decisions that we make day in and day out that have the impact toward us. As we go a little bit further in the text, we read this. He said, uh, the author says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So this is, this is uh, really pointing to that, that wealth we've talked about of Egypt that it has in place. And then it's saying that he's doing this, this kind of math, if you will, and he chooses reproach over that. And he sees treasures instead of with Egypt, he's looking ahead to this future reward. And he's motivated by that. Now sometimes this is thought of to mean, you know, somehow giving up on wealth is like a superior moral way of life and you should just live that way instead of by wealth. Um, I don't know that that's actually what it's driving at. I think that the concept here is really just about cold, hard cash. It's kind of saying the reality is, is you want to live for treasures of this world. It's a driving force in our lives. And if you're going to follow Jesus, it means at some stage for all of us, we have to say, no, I'm not trying to live to make the most money. It means I'm not trying to live for the almighty dollar. I'm just trying to live for the almighty, period. It means saying no at time to some job opportunity, extra work, extra hours. It might be saying no to an investment opportunity or saying yes to generosity and giving. The point is, is that at some point in our lives, and I'm not going to tell you exactly when that's going to be for you, but you should be finding situations in your life when you're actually saying, no, I'm not choosing this for the more money. There's some reason that's not a decision of faith. That doesn't mean it's wrong to make money. It doesn't mean it's wrong to make more money in some situations. Of course, it's not like choose yourself to get into poverty. That's not what it's asking to do. But it's saying, where is your heart in these decisions? If it's always making the choice toward making more money, and you're never seeing these situations where you've moved away from it, then you have to question, where is your love? Where is your faith in that situation? So Moses is a great exemplar for us to see that, as he gave up much wealth in this one-time decision moment to kind of move towards faith. But it says his motivation in this was to really look for the reward. So there's no concern about that motivation. He's looking ahead for what was promised. That is what drove Moses. And as we live our lives, there's nothing kind of guilty or, or bad in that approach. We are looking for the promises of Scripture that God gives us, and we're using that as motivation to overcome what we see that's calling out and alluring to us now. We have to say keeping our soul for eternity is greater than the wealth that we could have now if we had to give up the wealth in order to uh, save our life uh, in that way. What does this, uh, the words here say, treasuring, just to kind of talk on, on that idea, looking ahead to treasure of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. Uh, this piece is really uh, thinking about our loves. Like, what do we, we really love? What are we building ourselves on? Moses' faith valued and loved the reproach of Christ, despite the short-term suffering aspect of it. So his love showed his habits, uh, it showed out in his habits, and what he did uh, really showed what he loved. Sometimes we say we love things, and we don't always bring our life in conjunction with what we say we love. Our, some of our women are reading a book called, uh, I forget what it's called, uh, You Are What You Love, and they're reading that this summer. And as you think about the context of that, the idea is to look at what you actually do that shows what you really love, and at times, what we're doing is in contradistinction to what we say we love. And so you have to kind of mirror those things together to get a feeling for what someone actually loves. Look at what they're willing to do. Look at how they come against 
the, the kind of love that's present. So I was trying to think of a way to get a feel for what that looks like in everyday life. It's not a foreign concept. We do this all the time, but sometimes when it comes to faith, it feels different. So I was going to make a confession this morning that may be surprising. Uh, I was going to confess that I'm not a runner, okay? Uh, okay, I actually hate to run. Absolutely hate, hate to run. Uh, I have run at times. Uh, I ran some 8K races in high school and did some things. I actually ran quite a bit in high school, and I hated running the entire time. I would train all summer long for multiple years, would run every day, miles and miles, sweating heat, run sand dunes around Lake Michigan, uh, would run with friends by myself, clockwise through my neighborhood, counterclockwise through my neighborhood. I did a ton of running every summer, and I still hated running, believe me. But my hope was really for this. My varsity soccer coach said, you have to run all summer long if you want to play soccer. And I really loved soccer, so I ran. Additionally, he said there was going to be this race that we had to run in the community, an 8K race where uh, you had to train all summer long so you could run this, and basically you had to have a certain time or don't even show up to practice on Monday, that kind of thing. So with that intention in mind, I ran all summer long, did it, hated the entire time, hated the whole time through this race, gripped my teeth, every bit of it was unbearable. But it really pointed that my love was for soccer. It was part of my life. It was my identity. It was all I wanted to do, score goals, play with the team, go against our opponents, see how far we could go. The running was worth it. So when you think about those kind of decisions, we all have those kind of trade-offs where you make, where you're like, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean you hate running, but you run like every day? Like, of course, that's not what you do. You must actually have some enjoyment for it, right? No, not. You had your goal, your, your fixation on something else that you wanted to accomplish, something else you wanted to do, so you took different actions. This is what that self-denying faith looks like. If you really have hope and trust in something else that you do value, you trust in God, you have faith relying on Him, then you are willing to sacrifice, do things that are less enjoyable, to fall under suffering even in these circumstances in order to achieve that reward. That's the motivation that Moses lived out and that the author of Hebrews is calling us to. So as we go to our, our last point, we're going to look at demonstrable faith, faith in verses uh, 27 through 29. So if you go to the next slide, uh, there, uh, sorry, back one, my fault. Uh, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So in this part, uh, we have kind of demonstrable faith. What I'm going for is, when you think of Moses and this great person of faith, he lived out some pretty heroic things in faith. Uh, We're going to get to those in just a second in the text here, but he started on this trend, right? His parents set this up for him and how they lived in faith and defiance. He then chose self-denial and how he was living his life, and then it came out in kind of these really remarkable events later in his life. One of those is in this leaving and going to Midian. Uh, As Moses saw the oppression of his people, he actually murdered an Egyptian who was mistreating a Hebrew. And in that moment, he was really scared that that news was going to be found out, that he was going to uh, be exposed as a murderer. So he's fearful at that point. But then the text tells us that shortly thereafter, he fled Midian. He doesn't flee in fear. Uh, In Exodus uh, 2.15, he's fleeing from Pharaoh, but he's no longer driven by the fear because his secret is already known. It's well known now that uh, he had been a murderer. But Moses chooses to get away from Pharaoh, and he heads to the the area of Midian across uh, the Sinai Peninsula. And he runs away from the most powerful and vengeful king of human history, uh, or one of them, and intentionally, and he does it by faith. 
So he's making this conscious decision. So if we go to the next, uh, next slide, here's what he's weighing out, kind of similar to what we've been talking about. He had no fear of Pharaoh, and so he's willing to leave. But he does fear this unseen or invisible king, we could say, of God, and that's actually enduring action. So there's a bit of a paradox that's laid out there. In this one action of Moses leaving, he actually is enduring by leaving. Instead of not fearing the Egyptian king, he actually fears the invisible king. This happens so much in the Christian life where our action has kind of paradoxical uh, impact to it. Uh, sometimes the best way in the Christian life for us to, to live out is, is fighting against evil can mean not fighting is the right action for us to take. Sometimes loving God means hating something about sin or evil. Sometimes saving or laying up treasure in heaven can be done by giving and spending our money. Finally, sometimes the most logical means of, uh, sometimes by being most logical, we need to question kind of how we've arrived at our understanding, question the logic itself, understand where our own pitfalls are so that we can believe at times unbelievable statements to us. So faith can mean taking action to see what is unseen and sometimes paradoxical. So that was one of his first actions there that was a a big move, moved across away from one of the most powerful uh, leaders of his time uh, in faith. So go to the next next slide. Here's his last two demonstrable uh, actions. We'll try to wrap up quickly. It says, by faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Two big events of Moses' life, when you think of him, were the Passover, this, this Exodus event, and then crossing the Red Sea, very, very heroic points of history. One of the things is this happened much later in Moses' life. It's actually when he's about 80 years old is when this is happening, uh, likely. So he's uh, lived a long time already, made decisions, and then now is leading this kind of big moment in Israel's history. So I think there's an important piece there about our lives and these opportunities to live by faith, really at all stages. I've talked about kind of our younger children and where that comes to impact as well. But in our 20s, 30s, and even in our later years, the opportunity to turn in faith and how we live demonstrably uh, is important. But as we think about these couple settings that are described for us of the Passover, uh, leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, there, there's sometimes a question of, of, does this make sense? How is, how is this an action of faith? When you think about the Passover and the sprinkling of blood specifically that was required of the Israelites to place blood over the doorframe, and that way their children would be saved and the Egyptian uh, children would not be saved, and that would allow them to be freed from the oppression of Egypt and lead them out into their promised land. Uh, we read that and sometimes we gloss over it and think, yeah, yeah, ancient people are kind of stupid. They probably put blood on doors and thought it was no big thing. I mean, Moses knew what the army of Egypt was like. He knew what Pharaoh was like. The idea that somehow sprinkling blood on the door made sense is, is probably a bit of a leap. It, it probably was as, almost as crazy to think of as it would sound to us today to do that kind of action. Why would that change this great leader and his army? Like, I put blood on my door, but I think his army is still going to chase me. How's that going to make a difference? Uh, but he does this in faith. He takes these actions that at times don't make sense. And we are sometimes called to a difficult path of following God's instructions, believing in the resurrection, holding to an understanding of the afterlife, at times can seem as illogical or surprising as what we're asked to uh, sprinkle blood on a door as one of the actions that Moses was asked to do. So these things point to where we put our hope in and what we have as a future reward. Then that last one, we think about the Red Sea. This remarkable demonstration of faith. 
Moses led the people of Israel over the Red Sea and where exactly that fell, we're not exactly sure, but he did cross that Red Sea and it was on dry land. And you think about what that required for him to take that initial step into that, uh, into the Red Sea and then the dry land setting up. Just be an amazing first step to trust God at his word that he has said, this is what you're supposed to do. And then he takes this action to move forward. Uh, having no idea that he's going to make it all the way to the other side, what's going to happen to the Egyptian army that's closing in on them. Lots of questions that as we read the story kind of make sense to us. But Moses just steps forward in his next action of faith. So we know from this that uh, our life is to be marked by similar actions of faith. We're supposed to be at times defiant in our faith. We have this self-denial to our faith that's required very similarly uh, to what Moses had. And from that we may have opportunities to have very demonstrable, recognized faith for us here in Melrose especially, and living in our surrounding communities. As we think about what that looks like, the important thing to walk away is not to say, Moses, wow, this guy's really great. How can we be like Moses? Moses is the best ever. The important thing to know is that Moses had his faith in God. And that ultimately, Moses was just a picture to point us to Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 3 actually tells us that there is one better than Moses, and that's Jesus. And Jesus perfectly lived the life of faith that will never live perfectly. Moses himself, I don't think the murder thing was part of the plan. Uh, Things like that have happened. He also has many failures in his life in his older age of leading Israel through the wilderness. That's going to happen to us. Many times where we're going to falter, we're going to fail. So it's not about like grit your teeth and let's have the best faith possible. The reliance is to turn to God and know that as we take our actions in faith, that God is still working through us, that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled this for us, uh, and we can see that ahead. Uh, In that song that I I mentioned kind of at the beginning, it said, uh, my faith is like shifting sand changed by every wave. My faith is like shifting sand. But the phrase that it ends with is to say, so I stand on grace. Like there's a reality that, yeah, I'm getting tumbled by these waves. There's a sense in which as they change us every day, you're not left to your own perilous faiths. Uh, faith to try to conjure up enough energy to hold to God. The reality is that we stand on God's grace and he allows us to have the faith that's necessary in order to live the life and the challenges that we face. So as we think about what Moses-like faith could look like in Melrose, I think it involves lots of actions around not doing things in faith and actually stepping forward in actions of faith as well. And so we'll leave that with you as you think around these things. Think around what, defi- uh, what defiant faith may be asked of you, self-denying faith, or the demonstrable faith, living that out in front of others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, the time to look through the text. God, we pray your words would be strong and powerful this morning, um, that we would hear from you in this text, and God, you would help each of us to make decisions and uh, movements that are needed in our hearts, God, so that we can love you most and you would strengthen our faith. In your name.